The madness that is the March tournament's finally here. The brackets have been set, and the teams are ready to hit the court, and DraftKings, the leader in one-day fantasy, is celebrating with their largest free college basketball survivor pool ever. How large is it? $1 million in total prizes up for grabs. And if that's not enough for you, check this out. When you enter the free DraftKings $1 million survivor pool, you could get a shot at winning $10,000 for every upset that takes place through the first two rounds of the tournament. It's easy to play. Just pick one team per day. If they win, you survive and advance to the next round. Last person standing is the winner. Remember, you can only pick a team once for the entire tournament, so make sure you choose wisely. DraftKings is a safe and secure app, and you can deposit and withdraw your funds at your convenience. Get in on all this week's action. Download the DraftKings app now. Enter code THPN during sign-up and enter the free $1 million survivor pool. Again, that is code THPN to enter the DraftKings free $1 million survivor pool. Eligibility restrictions and terms and conditions apply. See DraftKings.com for details. Welcome to the 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast, a proud member of the Hockey Podcast Network. Each week we take a trip back in time to bring you all the hockey news from 50 years ago. And in this particular episode, we are in the week of March 15 to 21, 1971. In addition to DraftKings, we're also sponsored by Newspapers.com, where we get much of our news that we bring you each week and by the Breakwall Brewing Company in beautiful downtown Port Coburn, Ontario, makers of some of the finest craft beers in the entire province of Ontario. If you like what we do here uh, every day on Twitter and each week on the 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast, you can help us out by subscribing to the podcast at patreon.com slash hockey50years. Subscribers not only get early access to each week's episode, but a lot of special content we're putting together that is really interesting stuff. Uh, We get to dive a little greater detail into the things that were going on 50 years ago, and we think you'd really enjoy it. It's well worth the $5 a month subscription. Lots to get to this week, and so we'll get at it right away. Uh, There's a lot going on in the NHL in this week, 50 years ago, that really affected the standings and even the way the league would unfold over the next few years. We've got a significant NHL debut by a guy no one had really heard of at that point until then. The Blackhawks will lose their backup goalie, and that leads to another rookie making his first game in the NHL debut. Uh, Would this guy last in the NHL? And yet there's another crisis in the Red Wings family. Although by the end of the week, they were saying things were smoothed over. But that's what they said about the Gordie Howe situation too. We'll look at that as well. So in the weekend going into this week, uh, we had the NHL debut of a young goalkeeper in Montreal by the name of Ken Dryden. He was a Toronto native, played for the Canadians. He was famous 
sort of famous among more rabid hockey fans with his work as the goalie for Cornell University, the ECAC hockey power in the United States. This tall, lanky netminder had been playing part-time this season with the American Hockey League Montreal Voyageurs while he continued to study to get his law degree at McGill University in Montreal. Since the holiday season, Ken's play in the AHL had taken a drastic turn for the better and it became clear that his ability had progressed to a level that exceeded what was normal in the minor leagues. So Montreal general manager Sammy Pollock, not completely enamored with the play of his backup goalie Phil Meir, promoted the law student from the Voyagers to the varsity club but at the same time Sam made it abundantly clear that Ken was on hand just to provide insurance should the incumbent number one Vashon become ill, injured, or otherwise unable to perform, especially in the playoffs. Ken had to be called up at that point to be sure to be eligible for the Stanley Cup playoffs. Pat Curran of the Montreal Gazette reported on Dryden's National Hockey League debut. Pat writes, Big Ken Dryden enjoyed his NHL goaltending debut in a fine performance that helped the Canadians to a 5-1 victory over the Penguins in Pittsburgh and virtually knocked the home team out of a West Division playoff berth. But the six foot four McGill Law student wasn't fooled in his 35-save effort against the opposition. Ken said, They had very few real good shots against me. Sure, I made a couple of reasonably difficult saves, but I was warmed up to them after the earlier ones in the same shifts. Dryden admitted nervousness after taking to the ice in place of Rogachem Vashon, who had worked 15 straight games and deserved a break, according to Coach Al McNeil. Dryden went on to say, sometimes you feel it in your stomach, other times in the legs. Tonight it was in the legs, but certainly not as much as before those games in training camp. Ken was referring to two impressive exhibition victories against Chicago and Boston last September before becoming a part-time goalie with the Voyageurs. Now he's available for full-time duty with Canadians, having signed a new contract in January to continue his law studies as a hobby. It'll be a matter of feeling at home from game to game, added Dryden, who admitted at one time thinking of a shutout in that game, that first game. Maybe some goalies say they don't think of shutouts, but I do. Trouble is, it's just when you start patting yourself on the back that you get beaten. And isn't that the truth? As an old goalkeeper, had that happened to myself more times than it should have. Now, as it turned out, Dryden didn't give up a goal until the 39th minute of the game when rookie John Stewart was on the spot for his first National Hockey League marker. Uh, Dryden said, I was following the shot from the point and it deflected right to Stewart's stick and uh, that was the play that was set up by Ken Schinkel and Dunk McCallum for the only goal that beat Ken Dryden in his first National Hockey League appearance. 
This busy week began with Rangers general manager coach Emil Francis assuring anyone who'd listen that his team was entirely capable of catching the first place Boston Bruins before the end of the NHL regular schedule. With nine games left to play at this point, Rangers trailed the Bruins by 10 points, not an insurmountable lead, but certainly a daunting task when it's the Boston Bruins that the Blue Shirts are trying to catch. Francis talked to Rex McLeod of the Toronto Globe of Mail, and he had this to say, We still have another home-and-home series with them on the 17th and the 28th. Those games could settle first place. We haven't beaten them yet, but all our games were close, and we could have won a couple of them. Francis went on to say that right now he's not conceding one darn thing. Everyone is saying that Toronto and New York in the first round of the playoffs and as far as Francis was concerned that could be right with the Rangers first and Toronto third. Not really a chance of that happening. Who's to say, said Emil the Cat, that Boston can't stumble? Maple Leafs right winger Ronnie Ellis went into this week enduring just about the worst slump of his National Hockey League career. Going into the week, he'd gone 13 games without scoring a goal. Ron spoke with Frank Orr of the Toronto Star and said, I get quite a few tips, but no goals. I've had plenty of good scoring chances, but it seems that the touch to finish him off is just missing. Ron went on to say, that he always figured that when an athlete in any sport gets into a slump, that athlete simply presses harder, which tends to make things even worse. Ron said, I've been trying to avoid this, trying to be as relaxed as possible. He said, I don't know if I'm succeeding in that part of it. All I know about right now is that it's been a long time since I scored a goal. Ellis commented that he does a great deal of thinking about the moves he's made in a game. He said, perhaps I've seen a hole shot too quickly and missed getting good wood on the puck. Or maybe I've tried too hard for good wood, delayed a split second, and the hole then closes. That comes from pressing too hard. When you're relaxed, you make the move without thinking about it, and that's the best way to play. You'll remember we told you in an earlier show uh, about the Blackhawks uh, making a determined pitch to try and acquire both Roser Pema and Andre Boudia from the Vancouver Canucks at the trade deadline. But that offer uh, by Chicago general manager Tommy Ivan uh, was turned down by the Canucks uh, mentor Bud Poyle. We didn't know what the offer was. Well, this week, reporters in Vancouver, and we're not sure who obtained the scoop first, revealed the details of the Chicago offer. When Chicago boss Tommy Ivan made the pitch for Boudria and Paymont, Canucks general manager Bud Poyle admitted to him it was an attractive offer. He declined to say how attractive it was, and so did Ivan, but they found out later on that uh, although neither man would confirm it, Ivan's offer included young defenseman Paul Schmier, he's a hard rock type of guy, uh, winger Jerry Pinder, and Bill Young. Young, at six foot one, one ninety-five, is a top-rated prospect with the Hawks Central League farm team in Dallas. And to boot, Chicago's offer also included that club's second-round draft choice in this summer's amateur draft. The Pittsburgh Penguins are continuing to have terrible luck with player health these days. Two more key forwards were lost 
for the rest of the season this week. Their fine rookie left winger Greg Polis came down with, of all things, mononucleosis, and veteran center Wally Boyer was sidelined for the rest of the year with a broken thumb. Going into this National Hockey League season, after a long and productive career with Canadians, Ralph Backstrom decided that it was time to move on, and he requested a trade from the Habs. Now, Sammy Pollock, the Habs GM, seized the opportunity to turn what was actually a declining asset into some sort of a positive game by sending Ralph West to the Los Angeles Kings to help the Los Angeles club stay ahead of the California Golden Seals. Now this was not just Sammy Pollock having some particular affinity for Kings general manager Larry Regan or the irascible owner Jack Kent Cook. Montreal, you see, owns the Seals' first round pick in the aforementioned June amateur draft and they and the Kings, the Seals and the Kings, were battling, so to speak, for the last place rung on the NHL ladder at the end of the season. Pollock wanted to help the Kings keep ahead of the Seals and ensure that he, rather than the Bruins, who owned the L.A. pick, would get highly touted Quebec junior Guy Lafleur. Ralph Backstrom, of course, didn't much care about that situation. Ralph just wanted out of Montreal and Pollock accommodated him. Ralph told Dan Hafner of the LA Times that he's quite happy to be in LA, and he gave a bit of assessment of his time in, in Los Angeles so far. Ralph said, except for playing against them in some games, I didn't know the Kings or, or what to expect out here. It was all actually a pleasant surprise. Ralph said, we're not far from being a very good hockey team. It's my belief that this is a good organization with some good talent. We have made some real progress, whether we make the playoffs or not. Ralph said that uh, the Kings' problem at this moment in time is that they are consistently inconsistent. The longer the team stays together, the better it will be. Ralph says we have established one line, Yuha Whiting, Mike Byers, and Bob Barry, so we just need to get two more going and we'll be all right. Here's an NHL record that was set this week but wasn't a scoring mark uh, by one of the high-flying Boston Bruins. Uh, the National Hockey League has a new penalty king. He is Keith Magnuson of the Chicago Blackhawks who collected a pair of minor penalties Tuesday night in a game in Vancouver against the Canucks and that gives him a whopping total of 275 penalties in minutes this season, eclipsing the old record of 273, which was set by Howie Young of the Red Wings eight years ago. Young Magnuson now has a whole nine games left in the schedule to add to his already impressive total. That is, if you can consider penalties in minutes, totals like that, impressive. Speaking of Chicago, on the weekend, the Blackhawks lost their backup goalie, Jerry Desjardins, who sustained a very badly broken left arm when he was jammed into a goalpost. Anyone who's watched Jerry since he began his NHL career with the Los Angeles Kings knows that the strongest part of his game is his rapier-like left hand, rated as the best catching hand among all NHL goalers. 
Now, we really hope this injury doesn't diminish the premier part of the Desjardins' goalkeeping arsenal. At the time of the injury, the Hawks did not immediately identify who his replacement would be. It was generally thought that Ken Brown, working with Dallas of the Central League, would be the logical choice. But the Hawks caused quite a stir by bringing up a kid just about no one had ever heard of to back up the great Tony Esposito. Most Hawk fans, and of course the rest of us hockey nuts, might have been just a bit worried that the Chicago Brain Trust was figuring on playing Tony O for every single game in the rest of the schedule and the playoffs, and they'd probably burn the guy out. It seemed those fears were uh, closer to getting true when it was announced that the Hawks were turning to the Flint generals of the international hockey league and bringing up a 20 year old goalie by the name of sorry 21 year old goalie we don't want to give the kid less credit than he deserves 21 year old Gilles Malash and everybody said who the kid was such an unknown that the usually very accurate Gerald Eskenazi of the New York Times in an article about Malash repeatedly spelled his name incorrectly M-A-L-O-C-H, in a story that headlined, Amateur Goalie Joins Hawks, Replacing Injured Desjardins. Young Jules, who was a second-round draft pick for the Hawks in 1970, was, to say the least, himself shocked at his recall. Now, if you're wondering, the International Hockey League in these years was technically ranked as an amateur league, semi-pro at best. Players in the league are paid but at a rate well below what a bona fide pro would earn. I spoke to uh, some guys who played in the old Eastern League, which is a notch below the IHL, according to most people. The uh, Nashville Dixie Flyers used to train in Port Coburn every fall. One of the guys was trying to talk me into the advantages of playing minor league hockey. So they'll give you 100, 150 bucks a week and they'll find you a job pumping gas somewhere. As we mentioned, the Eastern League is just a notch below the IHL, but that is the league on which the movie Slapshot was actually based. The IHL was a very high-scoring league, and Malash had a goals against average of 3.38 down there. Not bad at all, and uh, the scouts down there probably saw something and related good information to the Blackhawks, who brought Jills up. And the Hawks wasted no time in seeing what young Malash could do against NHL competition. Although some cynics may argue that the competition that Jills faced in his first NHL game wasn't completely NHL caliber. Hawks coach Billy Ray threw Malash into the nets in the very first game the Hawks played after his call-up against the Vancouver Canucks out west on Canada's west coast. Uncharacteristically, the Nucks were actually a better offensive team in this one. Even though they lost to Chicago 7-4, they pumped 46 shots at Young Jills and he stopped 42 of them. How many rookies, fresh out of junior hockey, can boast a win in their first NHL game and make 42 stops in the process? Welcome to the NHL, Gilles Malash. We hope maybe you might be able to stick around for a few more years. So when you hear this next story, of course, the first thing you ask is, so what else is new? Yet another distraction, another sign of a very fractured team dynamic or whatever you want to call it took place Tuesday night at the Olympia 
in Detroit as the Bruins completely disemboweled the Detroit Red Wings by an 11-4 score. This game was a downright embarrassment for the entire Detroit organization, its fans, and its players. And one player was mad as hell and he wasn't going to take it anymore. At least not without letting Coach Doug Barkley know exactly what his thoughts were on the whole thing. And those thoughts, verbalized, earned Gary Bergman, Detroit's best defenseman, a ticket right out of this game. Joe Falls of the Detroit Free Press tells the story. Joe, by the way, figures this is the last time we'd see Gary Bergman in a Detroit uniform. Add one more name to the growing list of former Red Wings. This time it's Gary Bergman, a seven-year veteran of the Wings, old reliable of the Defense Corps. It didn't happen on an off day or just before the game or at a league meeting, times when players are usually uh, sent away. Bergman was sent home by Red Wings coach Doug Barkley between the first and second periods of Detroit's 11-4 loss Tuesday night to the Boston Bruins. All Barkley would say after the game was that Bergman had been sent home and would be released Wednesday morning, which probably means the Wings will try and make some kind of trade with another National Hockey League team. Now, a bit of editorial content here. Uh, Joe Falls is failing to realize here that the trade deadline passed the previous Sunday, so Gary wasn't going to be traded. But Falls goes on to write, Bergman has been rumored to be on the trading block throughout most of the season, and he has been outspoken in his opinions of the way the team had been run by former coach and current general manager Ned Harkness. The 32-year-old defenseman played the first period, and when he didn't show up on the ice or the bench, a phone call from the press box to trainer Lefty Wilson on the bench brought a reply that you'll have to ask the coach about that one but the coach would not say what the problem was nor would he say if he and Bergman had argued but apparently words had been exchanged between the pair over Bergman's play or maybe it was his attitude. There was also a perspective from across the uh, Detroit Canada border from Windsor by their very fine sports writer Jim McKay. Jim writes the popular phrase was no comment Tuesday night regarding the strange disappearance from the Detroit Red Wings bench early in the game with Boston Bruins at Olympia. Bergman headed for the dressing room near the close of the first period and did not reappear, although it was reported by Wings trainer Lefty Wilson that the defenseman was not injured. I can't and won't say anything about the incident at this time, commented coach Doug Barkley when pressed by reporters after the Wings had been thrashed by the Bruins by that awful 11-4 score. Barkley did tell McKay, yeah, there was an incident, and yes, I sent him home. There'll be a team meeting at noon on Wednesday, and I imagine the hockey club will make a statement regarding the Bergman situation sometime on Wednesday. Beyond that, I'm not prepared to say anything about it, and that was the smart path for Barkley to follow. McKay, a very relentless uh, sort, did uh, go on to contact Red Wings general manager Ned Harkness, hoping to get some kind of intelligent response. Harkness said, I don't know anything about it other than I noticed Bergman was not playing during the second and third periods. I haven't talked to Doug yet. 
Well, later in the week, a truce apparently was called and Bergman returned to the Red Wings' fold with everyone doing their best to pass off the incident as basically a tempest in a teapot. And Joe Falls once again was covering the story and here's what he wrote about the resolution to the situation. Trouble? What trouble? Everything was lovey-dovey between Doug Barkley and Gary Bergman on Wednesday, the day after that awful Tuesday game. They kissed and made up and flew off together into the wild blue yonders of Boston. And the whole strange story of the Detroit Red Wings gets stranger and stranger and stranger. Barkley, the harassed young coach of the Red Wings, admitted that he fined Bergman, his star defenseman, for the run-in they had on the bench during Tuesday's 11-4 shellacking at the hands of the Boston Bruins. Barkley told Joe Falls, I was uptight, and he was uptight, and we just told each other off. Now, Barkley and Bergman had been defense partners uh, when Bergman was a player with the Red Wings, and they were apparently during that time very good friends. Barkley said it was one of those things you do in the heat of the moment. Things weren't going terribly well for us in the game, and we both blew our tops. Barkley said that Gary apologized to him, and he was man enough to do that. And Barkley went on to say, I want to be man enough to forget about it as well. As far as I'm concerned, it's a closed incident. And that was the end of Doug Barkley's comments. Now, this is a little bit of a, a comment on just how bad the situation is in Detroit, but it's reading between the lines. You have to notice what's going on in the media to see the kind of attention being paid in these kind of situations. Joe Falls writing a lot this week about the Detroit Red Wings. He also had a, a large article about players traded away by the team playing in the NHL now that could help the club. And it's quite a long and very impressive list. Well, Joe Falls was the editor of the Detroit Free Press at this time. He's one of the most respected sports writers of this entire era. And an indication of that was that he was a featured columnist each week in the Sporting News, whose list of writers is a basically a who's who of the top sports writers in America. Each one of those writers in the Sporting News words carry a great deal of, of weight in the sporting world. Well, except for hockey, where they seem to take uh, almost whatever they could get. Uh, you had Stan Fischler writing columns for the uh, Sporting News, and Stan, you know, put out a lot a lot of content and that's what the sporting news needed they weren't a hockey paper they were basically a baseball paper uh, guys like Leonard Coppa Dick Young and Jerome Holtzman made up the roster of the writers and most of these guys like Joe Falls were not first of all hockey men the point here is that when a Joe Falls is writing about hockey, that means it's big news. The Joe Falls of the world don't pay much attention to the puck sport unless things are historically significant in a good way or in a bad way. Joe wrote uh, the articles about the Red Wings who are definitely, at this point in time, historic in a very bad way. And speaking of uh, Dick Young, whom many consider one of the greatest New York sports writers, although really, uh, from what I've seen, uh, not a very nice person. He even wrote in the New York Daily News this week about the mess that is the Detroit franchise. Uh, I thought I'd pass along a little 
bit of the gist of what Dick Young wrote about the Red Wings. So this is a view from New York about the Detroit franchise. Dick uh, starts his column by saying, news item, dissension destroying Detroit Red Wings. Good alliteration there by Dick Young. Uh, he says it's incredible to what the muddling of their owner has done to a fine hockey team. He let a college coach start the season, kicked him upstairs when the players protested, Ned Harkness, Rob Blundering, and squeezed out Sid Abel, general manager, and the last official remnant of professionalism in this organization. Now the Red Wings language six in a seventeen division and Bruce Norris, the inventive owner, has discovered the trouble. It's the press. Young uh, emphasizes the point his point saying like the other night when new coach Doug Bartley got into a shouting match with defenseman Gary Bergman on the bench, Barkley told Bergman to get dressed and get out. Bergman accepted the unprecedented invitation, leaving the Wings with four defensemen, three rookies, and Arnie Brown. They lost 11-4, making it clear that the newspapermen play bad defense. Young writes that if Bruce Norris wishes to discover the real source of his trouble, he might do well to look past the sports pages to the day he hired Jim Bishop to be executive director of the Red Wings. Jim Bishop was a box lacrosse man from Oshawa, Ontario. He failed to put his game over as a summer tenant in the Olympia, but succeeded in ingratiating himself with Bruce Norris. Bishop is the one who hired Ned Harkness, an old lacrosse buddy, to coach the Red Wings, Harkness having proven his NHL medal by putting together a good hockey teams at RPI and Cornell. With two amateurs in control, the Wings have gone to hell on ice skates. Harkness takes most of the flack in the appalled Detroit press, but it is the shadowy figure of Jim Bishop calling the shots in the background. He is using a shotgun. The purge of the players who petitioned for Harkness's removal has left only six men of last year's A-team, and if it weren't for the fact that the trading ban recently went into effect, Gary Bergman would be on his way to make it just five men remaining. Standing incredulous midst this dwindling group is Gordie Howe, who wants no part of all the politics. If Bruce Norris can summon the courage to admit his mistakes, perhaps something yet can be salvaged of the shambles by ridding himself of these Bengalian influences, the amateurs, and taking Gordie Howe and talking him into running the operation or at least some part of it. Ned Harkness, while he was at Cornell, always said he wanted a team that could beat Dartmouth. Maybe now he just has that team. A couple of attendance notes uh, for you this week. A Tuesday evening crowd for a game in St. Louis against the Minnesota North Stars set a new attendance record for that fourth-year franchise. The Tuesday night crowd of 18,320 persons pushed the St. Louis attendance for the season to 
637,296 for 35 games, which surpasses the club's regular season record of 621,525 set in 38 home games during the 1969-70 season. And another attendance note going exactly to the opposite end of the attendance spectrum. When the Seals managed a rare victory this week, a 5-2 win over the Pittsburgh Penguins in Oakland, only 2,647 fans were on hand to witness the momentous event. And that's all we're going to say about that. And still talking, I guess, about expansion. Uh, here's a rather unusual comment uh, by National Hockey League President Clarence Campbell this week, and we have a report from the Canadian press. Clarence Campbell, president of the National Hockey League, admits the playing caliber of the league has diluted considerably since the start of expansion back in the 1967-68 season. But he says... This dilution is only temporary. Campbell was speaking Tuesday night at the 22nd annual National Turfgrass Convention. And I have no idea what that was. And he said dilution was inevitable. You can't take half a bottle of whiskey and fill it with water and have the same drink, according to Clarence Campbell. Campbell said that it is true that the caliber of play in the old section of the league has suffered from expansion, but by the same token, the caliber in the expanded section had improved. Well, of course it improved. It went from not having any teams at all to having teams. Not to say the hockey was all that great over there, but it was better than what they had before, which was nothing. Now, here's just what the Philadelphia Flyers needed this week. Well, well, not really. After trading Bernie Perrant and anointing Doug Favell as their number one netminder, Favell went out and gave himself a concussion this week when he apparently fell on something on the ice and was injured during a Flyers practice. The Philadelphia Daily News reported that Favell, the Flyers' frontline goalie, was admitted to Lankanau Hospital in Philadelphia at about 8 p.m., three hours after suffering a cerebral concussion and a fall during a team practice. Dr. Stanley Spoon, the team's physician, said there is no fracture of the skull. Doug has been admitted for observation and a neurologist will examine and examine him in the morning. Dr. Spoon continued, he's probably all right, and if everything goes well, he may be out for just a couple of days. But I keep thinking about Bill Masterson, so we're going to play it safe. Bill Masterson, of course, was the Minnesota North Star skater who died of head injuries he suffered when his head struck the ice during the game in the 67-68 season. And the incident in which Doug Favell was injured in practice was discovered uh, described as much the same way as how Masterton was injured. Doug fell quite backwards with his back and then his head, the back of his head, striking the ice. And Doug apparently was completely unconscious for a few minutes. 
A little bit of a Bobby Hull tidbit from this week. Bobby talked to Chuck Garrity of the Los Angeles Times this week, and he told Chuck that despite Phil Esposito's attaining the mark of 60 goals so far this season, Bob doubts that he will ever reach that lofty level. Little did we know what the future would hold in store for the Golden Jet. As we did get to the weekend, there was a new scoring record set in the NHL. And no, I'm not talking about Phil Esposito setting a new record every time he scores a goal. We know that's going to happen. Same with Bobby Orr and his great totals. Those records are being set in every Boston game these days. The record that was officially broken this week was set in the 1925-26 season when a fellow by the name of Nell Stewart scored 34 goals which was the record for rookies first year men in the NHL and that record stood alone until just two years ago when it was equaled by the Minnesota North Stars Danny Grant and Norm Ferguson of the Seals. Now that record has officially been broken by Buffalo Sabres superstar in waiting Gilbert Perrault. You will remember Perrault was the highly regarded rookie taken first overall in the amateur draft last summer by the Buffalo Sabres and Punchimlack has said that this kid will be the equal of Jean Beliveau. Well, the fellow that the banners in Memorial Auditorium refer to as Joe Pro notched his 35th goal of the season in a 5-3 Buffalo win over the St. Louis Blues on Thursday night. We think there'll be a quite a few more goals where that came from for the Buffalo Sabres and Gilbert Perrault. For those of you looking forward, as I do every spring, to the 1971 Memorial Cup playoffs, which decide junior hockey supremacy in Canada, it looks like we're all going to be disappointed this year. The Ontario Hockey Association's Junior A division is adamant. It will not play for the Memorial Cup this season, except against the winners of the Quebec Junior Hockey League. OHA President Tubby Schmaltz said following a meeting of representatives of the OHA Junior A teams that the decision would be communicated to the Canadian Amateur Hockey Association. This dispute arose when the Canadian Amateur Hockey Association announced that the Western Canada Hockey League, newly admitted to the CAHA from its old outlaw status this year, would be allowed to use a number of overage players in the Memorial Cup playoffs. The Ontario Hockey Association and the Quebec Leagues balked at what they consider to be an unfair advantage given the West and they declined to meet a Western representative in the playoffs. Now the CAHA has asked the OHA clubs to reconsider their stand and a meeting was held and it was at this meeting that the two Eastern Leagues have reaffirmed their decision to not compete for the Memorial Cup. And I'm sure we'll hear more about this as time goes on this spring. 
Our last story this week is a pretty interesting piece out of Rochester, New York, of all places. It was written by Hans Tanner, who's the hockey man for the Rochester Democrat and and Chronicle. Uh, He's probably the best minor league hockey writer, and I don't mean that in a bad way, in, in all of North America. And he has a good handle on what's going on throughout the American Hockey League. Hans writes that a local automobile salesman wants to be the next coach of the Rochester Americans of the National Hockey League. And a car salesman coaching professionally? Well, I'll let Hans tell you that story. A Rochester automobile salesman is coaching the Amerks next season? It's entirely possible. Don Cherry, popular Rochester defenseman of a few years ago, says he has called Bud Poyle, the Vancouver Canucks general manager, and told him he's interested in the Amerks job. Poyle admitted Cherry is actually among the leading candidates, even though he has no coaching experience. Poyle says, I don't know Don very well, but I do know his brother Dick. If Don's anything like his brother, I give him the job tomorrow. Don is among our leading choices. Poyle went on to say that he was going to meet with Don the next time that he's going to be in Rochester, which would be for the end of the hockey season. Cherry told Hans Tanner, I really think I could do the job. I have an idea of what's needed. I've been out of pro hockey the past two years, but I'll bet I haven't missed more than two or three games here. And I've been able to watch more objectively since now I'm not connected with the club. So Don's been off for two years and Hans Tanner asked him if he if he would consider possibly being a playing coach because this year's versions of the Americans, which did not make the AHL playoffs, was very weak on defense. Don said, a playing coach? Well, I'd get into shape and I'd be available if we were shorthanded. I'd like to have the opportunity to coach here, added the man who guided Pittsburgh High's hockey team to the championship game of the recent Monroe County High School League playoffs. I think Don Cherry might find that coaching high school hockey might be just a couple of steps below the American Hockey League. But Don was always known as a great team guy, a very loyal guy to his teammates, and he probably has some ability as a coach, and we'll see what the future will bring for Don Cherry. So what did we learn in this week's show, boys and girls? Well, we learned that the Blackhawks lost their backup goalie, Jerry Desjardins, and they brought up another rookie goalie who will be around for a while, we think. His name was Joe Malash. Former college star Ken Dryden told us what it was like to make his NHL debut with Canadians against the Pittsburgh Penguins. And we learned of yet another distraction in the land of Harkness, the land of darkness, as the uh, serious rift between defenseman Gary Bergman and coach Doug Barkley, former friends, had developed right in the middle of a hockey game. Here's some of the stories we're working on for next week. You'll remember a couple weeks ago, the Red Wings uh, sent Gordy Howe to Florida. Well, the Red Wings weren't actually done sending people to Florida this year. 
Find out who next would be vacationing in the sunny south at the expense of owner Bruce Norris. A game in Buffalo, which would have been pretty unremarkable on any other night, turned into an historic occasion thanks to a couple of decisions by the coaches who were involved. And the Montreal Canadiens this week will honor an all-time great and the celebration may have given us a clue as to this man's future. And of course, we will have much, much more. The 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast is produced by Andy Cole, and we cannot thank him enough for all the hard work he puts into this. Andy is a true media professional. He is in the business of producing podcasts, and if you're interested in getting something together, get a hold of me and I'll hook you up with Andy. Maybe you can work something out. The very popular Juno-nominated Toronto Indie Rock Group, the Rural Alberta Advantage, provides our intro and exit music. And if you ever get a chance to see them perform live as things are now opening up, don't miss the opportunity. They put on a great high-energy show. I just love going to their shows. Other musical pieces and sound effects in this podcast are uh, by Andy Cole as well. Our research comes from files at the Toronto Star, Toronto Globe and Mail, and of course, the all the fine publications at newspapers.com. You can find us on Twitter at, at Hockey50Years and on Facebook under the 50 Years Ago in Hockey banner. We also have a similar WordPress site under 50 Years Ago in Hockey. Uh, the, the website is Hockey50YearsAgo.com and we are on Instagram as well. You can download the podcast wherever your favorite podcasts are and you can always find us at the Hockey Podcast Network. Thanks again to everyone who tunes into our show every week. Uh, these playoffs are going to be something else this year, and we're looking forward to bringing all that to you. And on that note, we shall see you next time. When the-